Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight, it is my intention to look at the next two psalms, which would be Psalm 56 and Psalm 57. And they do fit in with what we've been studying on Sunday mornings about the sovereignty of God despite the troubles of this life. Because both of these psalms are very, very similar in that they are a juxtaposition of David crying for help, asking God to defend him against his enemies, those who would trample and devour him. He's going to use that same language in each of these two psalms. And yet, as he is talking about the troubles that he is experiencing, he repeatedly leaps into praise and worship for God. And he also is going to say how much he loves God's word. And that is up against the fact that he's having trouble in this life. Which I think right away teaches us a very important lesson in how to live our lives. I said a couple of times now on Sunday mornings that even when difficulties arise, even when troubles and evils happen in this world, You still have to get on your knees and say, yes, sir. You still have to praise God when the good happens and when the difficulty happens. And that is a very consistent theology all the way through the Bible. And you're going to see it demonstrated in these two psalms. In the introduction to these two psalms, you're going to see the word miktam. Anybody know what a miktam is? Don't raise your hand because nobody knows. Nobody knows what a miktam is. It's one of those words. People just kept saying the word rather than defining the word. And now the word has lost its meaning. We don't know. We don't know if it's a musical direction. The NASB says possibly it means an epigrammic poem. Do you know what an epigrammic poem is? It means a short, concise, often witty kind of poem. I don't see that here, but they say perhaps it's an epigrammic poem or an atonement psalm, which is the exact opposite of an epigrammic kind of poem. Uh, So they really don't know either. It could very well be a musical direction because it is for the choir director According to Janath Elam Rehokim, what we know about those words is that it is a reference to a dove, and it is a reference to a silent or a mute dove. And so the NASB renders it as the silent dove of those who are far off, or the dove of the distant terabiths, which is a kind of tree. 
So what we know for sure is it's talking about a dove and it's talking about a silent dove or a quiet dove. And so some commentators have speculated that David is talking about himself and his companions in light of the fact that they are on the run and that people are seeking their lives. And so they are like silent doves because doves were oftentimes used as sacrifices to God. Now, Psalm 56 is actually inspired by an event that we have already talked about a couple of weeks ago. You might remember that David ate the showbread, that it was only legal for the priests to eat from. But David was hungry, and he got some of that bread. And then he got the sword of Goliath of Gath. That was the only sword that he had at the moment. But you might also remember that there was a guy there named Doeg who saw him, and Doeg was the chief of all the shepherds for King Saul. And he went and ratted David out. And so Saul chased after David. It resulted in the death of the priests there. David, meanwhile, ran away to Gath. And while he was there, uh, he feigned that he was insane so that the king would send him away and say, don't I already have enough madmen among me? Why do you bring this one to me? And so that is why we are told this is a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So that seems to be the event that David is referring to. Also, I don't usually get into particular Hebrew words, but the word sha'af is going to come up several times here. It is the word that is translated in the NASB as trampled, The word actually means inhaling and exhaling quickly, suddenly. It's like, and so figuratively, that word means to pant, or it can mean to devour. So he begins by saying, be gracious to me, O God. In other words, I don't deserve your help, but I need your help. I want your help. Be gracious to me, O Elohim. For man has trampled upon me. And that is that word, panting, devouring. They are fighting all day long, and he oppresses me. My foes, again the same word, have trampled upon me all day long. And they are many who fight proudly against me. So not only are they fighting against the king, not only are they trying to kill him, to keep him from the throne, but he points out that it is their human pride that is doing it and that it is their fleshly pride, which is why he mentions that it is man who is opposing and oppressing me. My foes have trampled upon me, and yet it's a man. It's fleshly men that have trampled upon me. Now, he's going to mention this a few different times. Later, he's going to use the word that just means flesh, basar. And then later, he's going to use the word adam, which is the word for man or mankind. So he keeps stressing, protect me, God. Be gracious to me, God. Help me, Elohim, because the people who are oppressing me are just men, So I know you can overwhelm them. I know you can overcome them, and yet there's so many of them, they will overcome me unless you protect me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. 
for they are many who fight proudly against me. And when I am afraid, I love this phrase, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I'll have faith in you. I'll have confidence in you. And that is very much what we've been talking about the last three Sundays. That faith is reckoning God's word as more true than your circumstances, even when your circumstances are filled with the troubles of this world, with sinfulness, with rebellion, even with evil, that nevertheless we have to recognize that it is God who has brought those circumstances into our life. And so rather than question him the way that Habakkuk did, we need to learn to just be silent before him, which is why God said that the man who questions him, his soul is not the man who questions God, His soul is not right within him, but the justified one will live by his faith. So we have to have faith and confidence in God despite our circumstances. That's exactly what David is demonstrating here. When I am afraid of my many enemies that want to trample on me, on these men that want to fight against me all day long, when I am fearful, I will put my trust in you. Jesus himself, when he was here on the planet several times, found his disciples in frightening situations. And how often did he say, fear not, fret not. That's for the guitar players in the room. (laughs) He would say, fret not, it's me. Because he, being the sovereign in their midst, was the reason why they should have confidence in him rather than fearing the circumstances of life. Same thing David is saying. When I am afraid, I will put my confidence, my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. So David just combined his praise of Elohim with the word of Elohim. It is much more than just the written word. It is the precepts of God, the instruction of God the things that have been handed down to David as king from God, the promises of God, the covenants of God, all of that David is taking confidence in because he knows it is the very word of God and he praises God for his word. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. Because what can... Basar, that word I mentioned a moment ago, translated here in the NASB as mere man, but it's technically the word that means flesh. What can human flesh do to me? Jesus said the same thing. Don't be afraid of men who can only kill the body. Be afraid of God who can put body and soul in hell. And so David's expressing the same idea. I'm not really afraid of mere men. What can they really do to me? And so my trust, my confidence is going to be in God, and I shall not be afraid. What can mere mortal men do to me? All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them out or cast them forth. In anger, 
put down the peoples, O Elohim. Thou hast taken account of my wanderings. In other words, you've seen me out here running away. You've seen me acting mad. You've seen me on the run from Saul. You've seen me and my men with no weapons trying to simply stay alive. And you've taken account of it in my wanderings. And then he says something very interesting that we don't really get anymore. During historic Middle Eastern days, if you wanted to demonstrate how much someone was loved when they died, if you wanted to show how much people grieved over the death of a person, a famous person, a powerful person, you would actually hire professional mourners. And the way those professional mourners would get paid was by how many of their tears they could catch in a bottle. And then you would look at how full the bottle was of their tears, and that was the way they earned their keep. This idea of showing compassion by catching your tears in a bottle is what David is making reference to here. It's a cultural thing that we don't have anymore in our culture. So it seems like an odd phrase, but he says, put my tears in your bottle. In other words, keep track of how much I've been crying to you. I've been calling out to you day and night. I've been on the run. You know my wanderings. You know the men who want to take my life. You know how many tears I have cried out to you. And then this wonderfully sovereign phrase, are they not in your book? In other words, you're keeping track. You know the hairs of my head. You know how many breaths I take. You know how many days I'm going to be alive. And you know how many tears I have cried. And you have kept a record of it. And it's all in your book. So you have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. And are they not all written in your book? So essentially, verse 9 is, If you do defend me, if because of wickedness you cast them forth, verse 9, then my enemies will turn back on the day when I call. When I call to you, God, and you defend me, that's when my enemies are going to turn away from me. This I know that God is for me. How does he know that? Because he knows the word of God the word of God that he praises. He knows the covenants God has made with him. He knows the promises that are given to his family, his lineage, his house. He knows the promises of God that God is going to defend the righteous. And so he is counting on the word of God despite his circumstances. He's being chased. He's full of tears. He's afraid. And yet he says, I know this. I know God's for me. Again, a really important lesson that ties in to what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. I know I sound redundant by saying that, but it's kind of remarkable in the good providence of God that we landed on these psalms after spending three Sundays talking about theodicy. Because here David is saying, despite my circumstances, despite what's going on around me, despite the fact that it all looks bleak and I can't stop crying over it, I still know that God is for me. And that's the attitude we ought to have. We who know a sovereign God, we who know that the circumstances of life are in God's hands, 
even when we're in pain, even when we're struggling, suffering, even when we're going through loss and grieving, we still should never forget that God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, so he's going to do that which brings him the greatest glory, and he loves us too much not to bring us whatever brings us the greatest good. And so we know that God is for us, even when it seems like the whole world is against us. In God, he says again, whose word I praise, that's in Elohim, and then he says, in Yahweh. So Yahweh, proper name, is my God, my Elohim. And he says twice, whose word I praise. And it is the word of God that gives him the confidence to praise God and trust God and know that God is for him. And we have that exact same opportunity to look into the word of God, see all the promises that God has made us, And therefore, because of God's word, we can continue to have our trust in him, despite the fact that this life can sometimes be very, very difficult. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. He keeps saying it. He keeps saying it. And then the same way that a moment ago he said, what can flesh or mere men do to me? He repeats that sentiment again. What can Adam do to me? What can the descendants of the original creature do to me? They're just created beings. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They're all going to stand before the judgment of God. And ultimately, what can they do to you? The worst they can do to you is send you home. What they can't do is separate you from God. What they cannot do is cast you into outer darkness. Only God can do that, so it's wonderful to know That God is for you. In God, I will put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Verse 12. Your vows. The NASB added the word binding there. You'll see it in italics. But it actually says, your vows are upon me, O God. I think David is saying, the promises you've made... The covenants you've made with me are upon me. And because I know that, I can't be afraid of men. I'm not going to be afraid of circumstances. Despite the fact that I'm crying, despite the fact that I'm running, despite the fact that I have to act like I'm mad so that people don't kill me, despite all that, I know that you were for me. And how do I know that? Because it says it in your word, and I remember your promises. It's a great way to live. Your vows are upon me, O God, so I will render thank offerings to you, even in the midst of all the troubles of this life. He says, I will thank you. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. He believes, since he has the promise that he's going to be the king of Israel, 
that once Saul dies, he is going to become king. So he doesn't believe that he's going to die at that very moment. And yet there are all these men who seek his life, but all those men cannot overcome the promises and oaths of God who has said you are the future king. So to some degree, David recognizes that he's bulletproof. Okay, there were no bullets at that time. He was spearproof, arrowproof. He, he knew that he could not be killed at that moment because God would not allow it, because God was with him. And so look again at the transition from, I'm crying out to you, be gracious to me, help me, keep my tears in a bottle. And then he remembers who he's talking to, and he remembers God's word, and he remembers the oaths and promises of God, and he ends up at, what am I afraid of? There's nothing men can do to me. For you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, you have delivered my feet from stumbling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Not only among those who are alive here on the earth, but among the ever living. So David, again, his entire confidence is in God, is in the word of God is in the promises of God, and that is a very good, very reassuring attitude to have as we walk through this life. So very instructive. So then Psalm 57 is for the choir director set to al-tasheth. That's an interesting word. We do know what that means. The word tasheth has to do with destroying. And al tasheth, if I'm saying that right, it's probably two syllables, tasheth, but I don't have enough aspirate in my voice to say that. But al tasheth means destroy not. Don't destroy. Again, it's a miktam of David, but then he gives us this clue. When he fled from Saul in a cave. Okay, so in the Old Testament, there is a story of Saul in a cave where David could have destroyed him, and he didn't destroy him. So let's go back and read that story. Go back to 1 Samuel. Keep your finger there in Psalm 57. We'll be back to it in a minute. And we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And we're going to briefly read that story. Chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, starting at verse 1. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. He was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of the En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. 3,000. He took 3,000 men to go pursue David. He was told David's in the wilderness of En Gedi, and he took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and they went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yeah, he's got 3,000 well-equipped men protecting him. David is never going to get him separated from those men. He's never going to get the upper hand on Saul, except that Saul had to go to the bathroom. And so, as you would do out there in the wilderness, 
He wanted a little privacy, and he found a cave. So we went into the cave to relieve himself, a very natural thing to do. Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, and David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of that cave. How fortunate was that? Out of all the caves in the area, he just happened to walk into the cave that David's men were sitting right there by the recesses of the entrance of that cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. In other words, not only is he separated from everybody else, probably doesn't have a weapon with him, and he's in a rather compromising position. You got the drop on him. So David arose, and rather than attacking Saul, David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Because, as you might imagine, if you just do the physics of it, he took his robe off before he went to relieve himself. And he left his robe near the entrance of the cave, so David wanted to show how close he came to actually killing Saul in the hope that Saul would recognize that David was right on top of him and didn't do anything. So instead, he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord. A little bit of confusing language there. The first word, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. Far be it from me because of Yahweh that I should do this thing to my king, who is Yahweh's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is Yahweh's anointed. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Hence, Destroy not. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men, saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord the king, for he is Yahweh's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe, and I did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it from me. May the Lord, Yahweh, 
judge between you and me, and may he avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now it came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now swear to me by Yahweh that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. An interesting finish to that story, even though Saul claimed that David was his son and that he wasn't going to harm him. David apparently didn't quite believe it yet, because David and his men stayed in the stronghold. Okay, so that is the backstory. For Psalm 57. So turn to Psalm 57. You might recall that Psalm 56 began with the words, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Psalm 57 verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O Elohim, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of thy wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. One of the things that David said to Saul was, I'm not going to touch you, but God is going to avenge me against you. In other words, God is going to take you out. I'm just not going to be the one to do it. And certainly that's what happened. And so in this psalm, David says that he's going to trust in God, take refuge in God's wings until the destruction that is coming to get him is taken care of, until it passes by, until it's finished, until it's over. Verse 2, I will cry to Elohim Most High, to God who accomplishes, and then the NASB adds the words, all things, but it's to God who accomplishes for me. The same way that he told Saul, I'm not going to harm you, but God is going to avenge me against you. God is going to make sure 
that you are no longer on the throne, that your family, your heritage is no longer on the throne, and I am going to be the king. It's just not my hand that's going to do that. But I am confident in the God who accomplishes all these things for me. He will send from heaven and preserve me and save me. He reproaches him who tramples, there's that word again, the one who devours me. He reproaches him who devours me or who tramples upon me. Think of that. It's exactly what he told Saul was going to happen. I'm not going to do it, but it is going to happen. It is God who is going to send from heaven, save me and reproach you because you trample on me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. But... Look at verse 5. Despite his circumstances of dwelling among, you know, lions. I mean, in the Middle East, if you came upon a lion, that was a big problem. But remember that David himself had had his run-ins with lions when he was a shepherd. And so he says, nevertheless, these people want to devour me. They want to eat me up. And so my soul lives among these lions. And they breathe forth fire like dragons against me. And even though they're just the sons of men, they've got sharp teeth that they destroy with. They're like spears and arrows, and their tongues are like sharp swords. And despite the fact that that's the kind of people I live among, does that sound like any of your neighbors, by the way? <laughs> and does it sound like anybody online? But oh, I just thought I'd throw that in. Despite all that, look at verse 5. Be exalted. Above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me, and they themselves have fallen into the midst of the pit they dug. Think about that. Now, we don't know if he's saying it's a literal pit. He's obviously making a figurative reference here because he's saying they're trying to destroy me and ultimately God is going to destroy them. So the very fact that they plotted against me is going to result in their destruction. They dug a pit for me. They fell into the pit that they dug. And why did that happen? Because God... God, again, David didn't say, I'm going to preserve myself. I'm going to save myself. He said all his confidence is in Elohim, who's going to save him and preserve him. So be worshipped, be exalted above the heavens, despite the people I'm around, despite their plan to destroy me, and let the glory of God be above all the earth. So even though they have prepared a pit, They're going to fall in the pit. Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast. That's the word that means upright. It's a word that actually literally means to be perpendicular to the earth. And so he's saying, my my heart is upright before 
My heart is steadfast standing before you. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. And I will sing. There's trouble all around me. There's people trying to kill me. I'm on the run. You've counted my tears. You've kept track of my difficulties. There are people around me like lions who are like dragons whose teeth and tongues are like destructive weapons. I think I'll break into song. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to worship God no matter what. And here's a good piece of advice. I just think it's good spiritual advice. I think it's good psychological and emotional advice. When things go really wrong, go worship God. Sing to God. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre and acoustic guitar and electric guitar and cajon. Cajun box. What is it? Cajun box. Cajun box? That's what I call it. Cajun box. Sure, why not? (laughs) Praise him on all the instruments. David on the harp and the lyre, I will awaken the light. I will awaken the dawn. I will give praise to you, O Yahweh, among the peoples. In other words, I'm not just going to privately praise you. I'm going to praise you openly. I'm going to sing to you and praise you among the nations. I will sing praises to thee among all the nations, all the nationalities, all the tribes, all the peoples of earth. They are all going to know of my love and worship and praise toward you. Why? Because verse 10, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and thy truth is raised up to the clouds. So be exalted above the heavens, O God, It's exactly like he said in verse 5, be exalted above the heavens, let thy glory be above all the earth, be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let thy glory be above all the earth, all the nations, all the people. And if you are genuinely convinced and believe that God in his loving kindness, in his preservation, in his sovereignty, is indeed above all of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the way to the heavens. If you believe that, then you can also say with David, well, then what can men do to me? What can flesh do to me? Instead, worship God, praise God, sing to God, trust God, despite your circumstances because he deserves to be worshipped and praised, regardless of what happens here on the planet. So, the world continues to get stupider and crazier. It certainly seems to be ramping up these days. The news cycles are going faster and faster, and the bad news just keeps coming, and it can be overwhelming, and it can make you think, where is God in all this? And it can make you think, oh, woe is me. And it can make you think, just come, Lord Jesus. I mean, enough is enough. Why are you tarrying so long? But despite the insanity of this world, we have the soundness of mind. We have the uprightness of heart. 
of knowing and loving God's word, and therefore we can have confidence in God and his word despite everything this world can throw at us. That was David's attitude. I think that's the grown-up Christian attitude. It's certainly the biblical attitude. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.